Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we welcome back Xinyi Lim, who is now the Executive Director, Sustainability and Agriculture Impact with Pinduoduo. Some of you may have noticed in the news that PDD's founder has moved into an Executive Chairman role, as well as a couple key new additions to the C-suite, so we talked about why that is and what prompted the changes. We also talk about the growth of live streaming in China, how PDD has entered the space as well, and what makes their product unique compared to their competitors. We then discuss what C2M is, why it's so relevant today, and why it's often confused with D2C. We also talk about why PDD is starting to see some comparisons to Costco. And lastly, now that we're six months out from the worst of COVID-19 in China, I asked Xinyi if they are adopting new strategies and to talk about the misconception that PDD only services the lower-tiered cities. Enjoy. So for PDD, compared to our peers, for instance, like uh, Taobao, where they launched a live streaming product much earlier, or for the pure play players like Douyin or Kuaishou, uh, you know, we only launched our live streaming product in late January this year by opening it to all of our merchants. So some people may have you know, felt that we were a bit slow, but I think the truth is we were just observing the needs of our users and merchants when it came to designing our live streaming offering. We didn't want to just replicate what other people uh, had done and then have a me too kind of offering. I think we were really thinking very hard about what is the benefit that live streaming can bring to our users and merchants. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Xinyi Lim, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me again. So this is our second round. The first one was so awesome that we had to bring you back again. So thank you very much for doing that. Thank you very much for the flexibility in getting this done. Why don't we jump right in? Because PDD has had some major news over the past couple of months. We definitely should talk about that. Your founder moving to an executive chairman role. And you've had some new key additions to the C-suite. What sort of effect do you see these moves having on the long-term business? And what will be the impact on consumers, brands, or technology, etc.? From our perspective, it's actually not that much of a change because, you know, Colin's always been very focused on making sure that PDD is an institution that is just beyond him, right? It's not something that falls apart if one day Colin Huang is no longer at the helm of management in the company. So for us, you know, the recent changes are an important first step for ensuring sustainable long-term growth. And Colin has also been very vocal about the need to groom the next generation of leaders and ensure that, you know, they have room to step up. And especially with the onset of COVID, we have seen in the last uh, six months, if you will, that actually there were a lot of young people in the company who took their own initiative, who 
came up with a lot of great ideas to adapt to some of the challenges brought on by COVID. And this was actually very encouraging for us in terms of highlighting that we do have a pretty good bench of talent that we should be developing. And after all, the tech industry is always changing. So you want to make sure that you actually get the fresh new perspectives coming in. You still can stay relevant. So all these things are Colin's personal interest. He's actually more of a researcher, more of a scientist at heart. So by stepping away from the CEO role, he can actually dedicate more time to focusing on our longer-term strategy and fundamental research. Now, some people, some people may ask, well, what kind of you know, research would Colin be interested in? So one thing that he's um, called out a few times is actually agriculture and agri-tech. So this does go back to the roots of the company, right? We did start in 2015 as Pinhao Huo, right, which was a first-party e-commerce platform that focused on fresh produce. And back then, you know, fresh produce online penetration was extremely low. Today, it's still probably only mid-single digits. So there's still a long runway for growth. But apart from just moving things from offline to being sold online, there's still a lot of fundamental transformation that hasn't touched agriculture. Right. I think there was a McKinsey report a few years ago that mentioned that agriculture is the least digitized industry out there. So when you look at the landscape in China, where there's a lot of smallholder farmers, right, what else can we as a technology company potentially do to improve their lot? So could we perhaps be working with you know, the midstream um, logistics providers right, to come up with ways that can extend uh, the shelf life of the produce or that can cut down on any food loss or wastage along the way? Or is there something that we can perhaps do at the downstream portion where we're also helping to verify food safety right, and um, ensuring that there's greater quality assurance to the consumer end? Mm-hmm. And then on the most upstream part, we have had our Total Farms project now for over a year uh, where we actually work together with the local governments uh, in Yunnan to implement pilot projects where we do also introduce different kinds of technology and innovations to improve the productivity and livelihoods of the farmers there. So this is something that is close to his heart and we think has a lot of room for further exploration. Now for you know the, the six 600 million plus users on Pinduoduo, they may not um, be thinking about agriculture as deeply as we are, right? So from their perspective, what changes? I think the short answer is nothing much because the focus of PD is still the same. At the end of the day, we're still going to keep innovating around delivering them more savings and more fun. So that's something that they know they can still continue to count on PDD to deliver. I think that's fantastic. And I love the agritech part. I remember reading a report one time that said that potentially investing in agriculture efficiency as a technology, using technology to improve agricultural efficiency would probably be the fastest way to improve or get ahead of the impending food shortage problem because so much food that is already produced simply doesn't make it to market simply doesn't make it onto people's plates so improving and and giving efficiency technology to people in agriculture could have a huge impact and i'm sure he's seeing that as well Absolutely. And I think in terms of agriculture, you know, it's not just a standalone industry. It's actually um, something that is also connected with issues like, for instance, climate change, right, or climate degradation. So as uh, perhaps the soil quality is changing, as the farming population is also aging, 
what are some of the elements that we can inject to help to mitigate some of these issues such that you can still ensure a certain amount of productivity and feed a growing population. So one thing that we've also introduced this year is we launched a smart agri competition. So what we've done is that we've actually gathered a group of technologists, right? So people with background in uh, machine learning and control systems, AI. These are the people who are forming teams. Uh, so we've got four teams in the finals now with researchers, from University of Wageningen, from Nanjing Agricultural University, from China Agricultural University, etc. And they will be going head to head against traditional strawberry growers. So the challenge is for the technology teams to grow their strawberries in the greenhouse entirely remotely. So it will all be sort of monitored over the course of the next three months using IoT. They will constantly be making some adjustments in terms of you know, the inputs and how they want to manage their strawberries. And then at the same time, the traditional teams sort of from the strong horticultural regions where you know, they've produced premium strawberries for a long time, they will also be competing head to head. And the final sort of challenge is we will be evaluating to see in terms of their respective plots, what is the economic profit generated out of it? So taking into account not just the quantity of strawberries grown, but also the quality, right? How much could these strawberries fetch in the market? And then netting out the labor or technology costs that go into it. And this, we think, is actually a very direct way of presenting to farmers, uh, these are the pros and cons. Right, of adopting new technology. So it's making something more concrete and tangible. And we think this is just the first step in terms of you know, bringing agri-technology closer to the farmers. I love that you're doing a 360-degree measurement to really make it an honest apples-to-apples comparison, you know, pun intended. And I've always found it very interesting in this, the, the, this race of innovation between doing things differently and then just doing things better. And which is best for which industry is doing something different the best way to do it or is something doing something the old way, but just more efficiently or better. Is that a better way? That's excellent. Thank you for that discussion. Now, there's been a lot of focus uh, placed on live streaming in China over the last 12 months. And the data that we're seeing and by we, I mean, WPIC is that the tactic is only growing. Not only in provenance, but also in its its share of, of marketing budget. It's 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 actually creeping in and growing inside the budgets. Uh, so people are taking this seriously and recognizing in its importance and effect. What are your thoughts on live streaming as a whole? And then specifically, how does PDD's own product fit into that space? Yeah, I'd say live streaming is probably the number one industry buzzword like this year as well as last year. And I think just the impact of COVID happening in the first half of the year, kind of like leading to a very protracted Chinese New Year break for people, that has probably helped to accelerate the takeoff of uh, live streaming, especially live streaming for e-commerce. So for PDD, compared to our peers, for instance, like Taobao, where they launched a live streaming product much earlier, or for the pure play players like Douyin or Kuaishou, you know, we only launched our live streaming product in late January this year by opening it to all of our merchants. So some people may have, you know, felt that we were a bit slow, but I think the truth is we were just observing the needs of our users and merchants when it came to designing our live streaming offering. We didn't want to just replicate what other people uh, had done and then have a me too kind of offering. I think we were really thinking very hard about what is the benefit that live streaming can bring to 
our users and merchants. Mm. So it's not an end in and of, of itself, right? So it's not just, oh, let's just have X million people like target X million people, X million merchants to be on live streaming, right? It has to boil down down to what is the value that live streaming can bring? Does it drive conversion? And how do you drive conversion? Actually, at the root of it, it's building trust. So for certain categories that people uh, may be less comfortable or less uh, familiar with purchasing online, right? whether it's jewelry or maybe say imported goods where it's foreign brands, this is a perfect category or example in which live streaming can help to build that trust trust in the shorter period of time. So we actually held a series of uh, live streaming events where we took our users to the streets of Shanghai, right? We had a collaboration with the Danish consulate where we visited several stores from for brands from Denmark like Pandora, Lego. So you could actually have the salesperson speak to our you know millions of users live and answer questions about particular SKUs, right? Like, oh, can we have a look at number 225? Oh, this is a beautiful charm bracelet. It has this and that. You know, it's got all these special features. So this is a way to really break down the distance uh, between the shopper and the merchant. And for that reason, the design on our platform is also quite different from other e-commerce uh, platforms. So we don't have a centralized gateway where, you know, you fire up the app and then it says, oh, come and watch a live stream. Because it, it still has to go back to, well, what are you interested in and how can the live stream help you, right? So it should be part of shopping and not detract from your shopping experience or distracting you from what you came for. So on our platform, you, you will find the live stream entryways perhaps on the pages of the products. So there's a little label that will show, for instance, if you're interested in menswear and you're browsing on menswear. And then some of the listings that are shown to you, well, that merchant happens to be live streaming right now. So there's a little button on the site that just lets you know there's a live streaming going on. So if you're interested, you can actually check it out. Or if you have a question about the sizes, right, you can always ask. So this is, I think, central to how we think about live streaming. It should be a tool that helps the merchants. The merchants should feel that they can actually have that connection with users. They can have some control over their own fan base rather than being reliant on uh, paying hefty sums to get certain KOLs to drive traffic to them, right? I think for every merchant, at the end of the day, they want to have some direct connection. They want to have their own direct fan base. So over 20% of our merchants have already signed up for the live streaming on our platform. And um, between February to March, right, because of that COVID impact I was talking about, we saw the live streaming sessions held on PDD grow five times. So some of the really popular categories that we have, it would be beauty, uh, food, women's wear, accessories. So so I think um, going down the line, right, we continue to see more and more merchants come on board and experiment with different ways in which they want to communicate and showcase their products to their users. Okay, so for some of those new users that are adopting, transitioning to the, the PDD live stream product, what unique features can they expect? So I think for the PDD live streaming, right, the the 
you the features I would say are relatively standard, right? So in terms of like discovering the products, interacting with the merchants, but I think it's the um, sort of people that you can expect to see on the live stream that is different. So um, certainly the merchants, if they want to, they can engage, say, a professional, you know, live streamer. They can engage an MCN to do that. But most of the time, we see merchants choose to do it themselves, and we do provide them with a lot of training at Toto University in terms of you know how to get a live stream going, right? How can you sort of make sure there's a sufficient engagement throughout the process? And so certain functions, like for instance, the writ packets, those uh, are also pretty popular amongst the merchants, right? So it's you know usually a smallish amount. Because considering some of the live streams, right, you have like tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, if everybody's fighting over a hundred RMB red packet, if you're fast, maybe you get like two cents. But it's that thrill, right? So I think it, it speaks to that desire for entertainment and engagement that, you know, the users st- still have. Yeah, yeah. And I think for us, we've uh, really tried to uh, shine a light on certain um, categories like agriculture with live streaming. So we had farmers as well as community leaders actually the spokespeople for the local agricultural produce, some of which were stranded due to logistical constraints due to COVID. So, you know, some of them, they have tons of uh, potatoes or oranges, etc. And they urgently need to get it to market, right? If it doesn't transact, if nobody buys it, then that's the cash flow going down the drain, right? That's one entire season's worth of work entirely wasted. So this was something that uh, we saw was extremely effective um, in terms of, you know, connecting um, the users, some of whom were perhaps a bit new to the idea of buying fresh produce online. But once they saw the live streams, they felt like, hey, you know, I can also see the farm. I can see how it's being grown. I can talk to the, the farmer. There's that connection. And they know that it's also for a good cause. So that really helped to accelerate a lot of our sales. So with the agricultural live streaming, you know, in response to COVID, our Help the Farmers program managed to accelerate sales and generate over 630,000 metric tons of fresh produce sales in over four months, in just over four months. So this was something that I think uh, really speaks to, I think, the growing momentum and interest in live streaming when it's you know, rally to a very clear kind of a, a, a call to action, if you will. Uh, and then some of the other things that we've also experimented with on the PDD live streaming that is a bit different is also with regards to experiences because everybody's locked down. Everybody wishes they could travel or, you know, just be out of the house. <laughs> so why don't we bring the experience to them? So we have, for instance, you know, brought users on virtual tours of museums. We've brought them uh, on virtual travel tours as well. So They could buy travel packages. They could buy travel attraction tickets after they sort of see the virtual tour, right? And kind of like see before you buy. So we've taken them to places like Yunnan, you know, all over China, uh, from basically the north to the south, uh, a lot of scenic sites we've, we've covered. So I think that's something that we still see a lot of traction behind. And this could be a new way of uh, travel effectively. I agree. I agree. You mentioned red packet, and I think most people would understand that that's a hongbao, right? The the red envelope. Yes. But there was another term that you use, which was MCN. Could you just quickly cover and tell our audience what is an MCN and how does PDD, you know, why why would an MCN be in the vocabulary world of PDD? Sure. So MCN is basically, you know, the the concept is that they are like a third party service provider that um, 
has a collection of uh, content uh, providers, right? So I think the, the term was originally used more frequently, perhaps with regards to, say, uh, YouTube, right, where you had all these little uh, popular channels. Now, in the Chinese context, a lot of these, you know, key opinion leaders are people who are very specialized in live streaming sales. They are effectively their own channel. So whether they go on to uh, Douyin or Kuaishou or Taobao or PDD, right, they have their own sort of um, known fan base. And of course, there's a whole spread of them, right? You've got people who are clearly at the top, commanding top dollar, and then you've also got maybe the more mid-tier or more niche kind of opinion leaders or professional sellers. Mm -hmm. So I think the MCNs in China have been uh, one sort of intermediary that brands perhaps turn to, right? If they are looking for maybe a more ready-made solution, somebody who has a certain guaranteed amount of followers. So on our platform, that is also an option, but it's entirely up to the merchant if they want to engage in that because there will also be extra fees involved, right? That you have to pay out to the influencer or the MCN. Uh, whereas if you just did it yourself, you know, as a merchant promoting your own store, right? You Or you get your salesperson to do it, it's uh, free, right? So we don't charge you to run a, a live stream channel uh, for your own store. So that's just uh, one of the options um, that's available to our merchants. Love it. Okay, thank you. I think MCN means multi-channel network, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Right. So moving on to more acronyms, everyone knows what a B2B and B2C means, right? Business to business, business to, to consumer, and, and the examples of online platforms that accomplish those, let's call them exchanges. However, a lot of the conversations around PDD focus on the concept of C2M, right? consumer to manufacturer. Can you please explain for to our audience, what is a C2M system? What does it look like? What are some of its features? And then perhaps uh, give some examples of that system in action. Sure. So I think the essence of C2M is that we want to shorten the distance between consumers and manufacturers. So it's, it's in essence, a differentiated way of thinking about how products are designed made and sold to consumers. Because uh, traditionally with offline retail, the manufacturers didn't have a direct connection with the consumer, right? You maybe made, you know, t-shirts and then there were all these uh, different kind of like people who placed certain orders, but where that t-shirt finally ended up, you had no clue, right? Maybe it then went on to a particular supermarket or department store somewhere, and then it got picked up finally by the consumer. So you didn't really have the insight or that feedback loop in terms of, well, you know, which t-shirt design did really well, right? Or why did people really respond uh, to this product? Was it because of the color? Was it because of the pricing? And so when it came to the time for you to roll out a new product, it was quite clunky, right? When you're designing a new item that you want to bring to market, the traditional way would involve perhaps you go and gather a, a panel, right? It's almost like, uh, you know, you have a little selective feedback panel where you're like, okay, you know, here's the new product. It comes in um, this shape or in, in, in this size, etc. What do you guys think? And then you gather that, you, you try it again with another focus group, right? And then you, you tweak things and then you, you sort of go about it again. So by the time the product actually reaches the market, there is usually quite a bit of a delay. So, the concept of C2M was really just um, us thinking, well, why does this still have to be the case when so much of retail is now happening digitally, 
if it's all happening through e-commerce, why don't you just turn things around and have information on the user uh, side, right, in terms of demand, their preferences, etc., feed into what gets made. Then this allows you to cut waste and give better prices to the consumer, right, drive even more sales. It's ultimately a virtuous cycle, right, that gets kickstarted as a result. So, you know, I think for a lot of traditional uh, manufacturers, not having that information has been a real inhibitor to adopting or embracing C2M. And so we see um, our position in the ecosystem as putting us uh, in a good place to help these uh, manufacturers maybe pivot, right, and uh, serve more of um, the domestic demand, right, give the people what they want. So we know that China is effectively, you know, the manufacturing hub of the world. Right. A lot of things have been made in China in the last few decades, quite labeled, um, and then exported overseas with a different brand stuck onto it and then commanding a little premium. Now, for the consumers in China, their preferences perhaps was not so directly fed into these manufacturers because these manufacturers, these OEMs, they usually just took you know, a certain um, order from the overseas uh, brand that said like, okay, make it to this spec and then I want you know, uh, 1 million units of it, right, over the next year or whatever it is. And so they just did it. And so it's relatively de-risk, but at the same time, they didn't really have a good clue of what the trends in the market were. It was all coming in a more delayed fashion uh, from the brand side. Now, a lot of these products, actually, the manufacturers themselves hold uh, patents and are able to produce, uh, you know, very good sort of their own brand uh, kind of products, which they were interested to also sell to domestic consumers, but they didn't really have an idea how to do so because uh, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? Anyone who's tried to start a new brand usually has to spend a lot on like sales and marketing just to get people to pay attention. Like, hey, you know, here's my new brand of home appliances, right? Or this and that. Um, and then that takes a while to translate. So in the meantime, you're you're pouring money into sales and marketing. The sales may not be enough to like offset. And then the the manufacturer may just think, well, I'm not really sure this works. You know, maybe I'll just I'll just stick to like fulfilling export orders. But at the same time, export orders have been pretty volatile, right? They come and go. And so I think in the interest of a lot of these manufacturers, ideally they want to have a more diversified business that also services domestic demand, which is still growing uh, very strongly. So we've worked with some of these um, manufacturers in our new brand initiative. So we launched this in December 2018 with the target of reaching you know, 100 brands in 2019 and 1,000 at the end of 2020. So end of 2019, we already exceeded that. We've worked with different uh, manufacturers in different industries, ranging from, for instance, small home appliances, you know, crockery, glassware, paper products, bed linen. We've even gone on into uh, the food industry, right, with tea, for instance. Mm -hmm. So in all these different industries, we work with a variety of these manufacturers so that we have multiple data points, right? So we know roughly like, okay, for, you know, small home appliances, this is the value that we can potentially drive to them. Now, what do I mean by that? So as you sign on to become a new brand initiative partner, we don't charge them extra, right, to be a partner because we think that uh, in the true sense of a partnership, right, both sides should be able to gain something and come out stronger for it. So what we uh, have in mind is that 
we can actually funnel information um, about the user preferences on an aggregated basis for that particular product. For instance, if um, you know you're selling crockery, right? I can let you know that hey, um, actually for uh, the type of crockery that you're producing, the, these are kind of like the sales trends that we're seeing, right? Maybe this is the median price point that a three-piece, you know, pot. Uh, pots and pans set would transact that. And uh, perhaps this is the size that is most in demand because maybe um, there are a lot more people in small households, right? So the huge pots and pans maybe don't do as well as maybe the smaller ones. Um, and then these are also kind of the things that are trending, right? Maybe people are looking for antibacterial coating or, or, or whatever it may be. Right. And then that information can help the manufacturer design something that is more targeted. So one of our partners is a company called Sanhe, and they've actually had a long history being an OEM for brands like Le Creuset or WMF and you know they have a very significant market share in Europe right to Today, two-thirds of the business is still servicing the export market. However, uh, they've also been trying to pivot to the Chinese market. And based on our insights, one of the things that they were able to design was a 99 RMB uh, kind of non-stick pen, which became a blockbuster seller. So before they came on the PDD, before they became a new brand initiative partner, they had been trying to target the Chinese market by themselves, right, starting from five years ago. But it was kind of stop-start in that they had to do their own R&D. They had to do their own testing. It was a very slow process and the sales were uh, relatively uh, thin, right? So maybe it's kind of like, you know, 6,000 units a month, right? Which was not quite what they were hoping for. Now, after partnering with PDD, right, they also had a bit more insight into uh, what sort of thing might work. They came up with this 99 RMB nonstick pen that became uh, a hit product, right? And then they just saw their sales explode through the roof, right? So uh, it's it's like a more than 10x kind of growth, right? You go from like 6,000 a month to like 100,000 a month. Wow. So when you have that kind of a shift in your manufacturing, this really translates to economics, right? Because suddenly you have massive scale when it comes to producing this particular SKU. And I think this is a point that often people don't appreciate when they think about how, you know, why products on PDD can be priced at a lower price than other platforms. It's really the economies of scale. Once you have that kick in, then you, you kickstart that virtual cycle I mentioned earlier, whereby, you know, you can actually really bring down the cost of manufacturing and then relay that to competitive prices that can drive even more sales, right? And then just keep that flywheel spinning. So this is something that we are doing across different industries. And um, we think that C2M is a longer term uh, trend that is here to stay. Okay. Let me ask you something though. I've worked in the corporate innovation world, so to speak, struggled in the corporate innovation world, so to speak. And uh, looking at manufacturing, are, yeah, I mean, from what you're telling me is that they are getting there. So I'm going to ask a, a question that I think I know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are they typically set up, are manufacturers set up to properly be able to innovate and like to, to take in that data that you're getting them, take in that insights and information that you're getting them and know what to do with it? and know how to pivot and, and iterate the products that they make or the pricing or the business model, the go-to-market, whatever, in, in, in a way that makes it worthwhile and relevant and quickly to be able to do it. Because, you know, a lot of processes and, and antiquated, you know, companies and systems and manufacturing warehouses and things, that they, they're, they're kind of slow moving to catch up. So 
how effective, how are you enabling them to be able to effectively iterate quickly enough to jump on these and get that 6,000, 100,000 type of delta in, in, in purchasing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that is also one thing that sometimes people ask like, oh, so how big do you think C2M will be this year? What is your target? And it's really hard for us to put a fixed target on it because like you said, it does depend on how ready um, the enterprise or the manufacturer is to adapt to some of these information. So for some of the manufacturers, like for instance, Sanhe, they actually have a, uh, a very sophisticated manufacturing line and they have been doing some of their own R&D for quite some time, right? I mentioned that they were trying to expand in the Chinese market by themselves. So they already do have a pool of people um, sort of thinking about or trying to, to tailor products to users, but the time and the cost uh, of getting that information was a hurdle, right? So this was something that we were able to mitigate with for them, right? So we could actually tell them uh, on an ongoing basis, right? These are kind of the things that we see, right? And then kind of narrow down to like, okay, maybe something at this price point would work. And then again, why I mentioned some of these large OEM manufacturers, they actually do have very deep manufacturing capacity, right? So one of our partners is uh, Jia Wei Shi. So they are a robot vacuum cleaner manufacturer. So they manufacture for a lot of top European brands and they actually have um, the flexibility to uh, ramp up the production line as the product that they rolled out on PDD, customized for the new brand initiative, really took off. So they introduced a robot vacuum cleaner that was priced at 288 RMB. So this is a fraction of what a typical branded robot vacuum cleaner would cost, right? And then as the sales of that product really took off on PDD, they started to adapt in terms of, okay, let's run two shifts on this line now, right, to keep up with the demand. And then when that wasn't enough, they kind of looked around and said, okay, we have, you know, this other line that is making this other SKU that really doesn't get as much uh, demand, right? So, you know, inventory is probably good enough to like last for a couple months or whatever it is. Why don't we just turn that off, right? Take the SKU off, rejig a little bit to manufacture this uh, hit product on that production line as well. So that's what we've seen a few of um, the manufacturing partners do. But I think you're absolutely right, right? In different industries, the readiness um, of the manufacturer to adapt and make use of the information can vary. And so that's also why with our new brand initiative, we had a very targeted approach where we start with particular industries, right? So we really work with a few uh, manufacturers in a given industry, right? So then you can say, okay, for this cluster, right? I'm seeing this, this and that, but then I can uh, have enough data points to know that, okay, is this something that is unique? to this industry that is maybe making uh, what we thought would happen slower, right? Or is it something that's just unique to this one company, right? And then we are able to sort of try and transplant that to the different industries that we go on to. And I think our goal is that as we get more experience working with manufacturers of different size, and obviously we, we get more applications than the partners that we, we have finalized. Mm-hmm. So we are already sort of picking the ones that have that demonstrated, you know, quality production, ability to sort of manufacture at scale, et cetera, right? So we are already working with a subset that we think are better poised uh, to succeed and then extracting kind of the learning points as we go so that we 
when we go into um, new industries, right, we also have a better sense of, okay, this will probably be how long it takes and this is what we can maybe deliver and this is what we probably would see or should, should see in terms of the effect, right, when it comes to producing a hit product. So um, another example, for instance, is a glass manufacturer that we work with called Deli. So they actually manufacture, you know, a lot of glassware, white label for overseas retailers, right? So, you know, the likes of uh, Walmart or Carrefour, for instance, it's just that the people don't associate Deli with that glass that they bought from the supermarket. So when they started to ramp up their own product or their own uh, brand domestically called Green Apple, one thing that they wanted to uh, try was actually wine glasses because there's a growing middle class in China and uh, they had been producing wine glasses but for the European market and so one thing that they took advantage of on our platform is that you can maybe experiment with a different way of gathering consumer feedback. So they manufactured batches of the wine glasses, right, prototypes. And so each batch was maybe like 100 to 200. And then we put this on the, uh, which is like the flash sale segment of our uh, app of our app. So, you know, as you go on there, you'll see something is uh, on, on flash sale for like one RMB, right? There's 100 pieces and the flash sale starts at like 12 p.m., right? And obviously the glass costs, glass plus shipping, right? Costs more than one RMB, but it's effectively like you're getting a real-time consumer panel, right? You can sign up these people very quickly. You get the feedback from these consumers and then you can sort of iterate on your product design. So very quickly, they found that, okay, what they had thought would work with a thin uh, stem, tall glass, very light kind of construction. That was kind of the opposite of what the Chinese consumer preferred. They wanted something that was a bit stockier, that felt a bit more solid and thicker and would fit better into their dishwashers and in their wine cabinets, mm -hmm. which are of a different uh, size, right, compared to Europe. So by, by doing a few rounds of these, they were able to tweak the product, right? get the feedback, tweak it a little bit. And so the entire product development cycle was compressed right, by more than half. So this is something that I think for enterprises that are you know, open-minded and are ready to adapt is actually very powerful. I can attest to the value of those wine glasses because I have broken more than my fair share hand washing them in the sink. Um, <laughs> very delicate and I am not. I'm going to, I want to ask you something too, because, and it alludes to a question that I'm going to ask you a little bit later, but it's, it's, it's actually fantastic that I think that you're, you're investing in your upstream in, in a way that I wouldn't see other type of, you know, the Costco's or Walmart's. I, I don't think that they do that as much. They kind of grind down their, their upstream to be able to extract more uh, profit out of downstream. So I, I applaud that. Can you quickly do something for me though? Can you separate D to C from C to M? Because D to C is <laughs> more often than it should be confused with C to M, especially on this side of the pond. So I think that's a great question about uh, D2C and C2M, right? Uh, mm -hmm. All the acronyms. And I think certainly folks in the US would be very uh, familiar with, you know, the flurry of D2C brands that are available out there. It seems like there's a brand new one uh, every day, right? Pun intended. But I think one key difference is that for a lot of these D2C brands out there, they're often just brand new startups, right? They are um, having to overcome that cold start issue whereby you really have to plow in a lot of dollars into sales and marketing, right? And um, they may not have a very established uh, history in terms of that product development 
or just operating, you know, manufacturing at scale, right? Whereas in C2M in China, we're dealing with manufacturers who have decades of experience manufacturing for maybe overseas brands, and these are guys who already have very deep manufacturing capabilities. Such that if you want them to maybe try a new product, right, design a new product, and I tell them like, hey, you know, avocado green is trending. Let's make this pot, right? But in avocado green, and we have the data、uh, to suggest that it probably is going to take off and sell really well. They actually have the bandwidth to try, right? Whereas if you are a young D two C brand, like you see in the U S, sales and marketing is the number one thing that they're pouring money into, and they are just really pitting a lot of attention on one single product, right? Just one product has to go viral. One product has to be a super success, and then they have to work on retaining the user somehow. But I think the difference being on on our platform, again, we are a platform for all kinds of goods. So you, as a consumer, know that you can come to PDD and you can discover value for money goods, whether it's in electronics or it's in snacks or in paper products, etc. Right. So the amount of traffic that will already be coming onto PDD is much larger to begin with. So for the manufacturer, the C two M manufacturer, it's a much more cost efficient way of acquiring traffic, as well as what I mentioned earlier in terms of doing that、uh, R and D, right? In terms of iterating the product design, and in addition, at its heart, C two M, like I mentioned earlier, is about connecting the users closer to. The、um, man- manufacturing end, right, and really bringing in the user's preferences into the beginning of how you create these products. So, given that we are a platform that is constantly engaging with over six hundred million users, that allows us to always have that feedback loop in real time. Whereby you, you, we've actually seen some manufacturers、uh, take pre-orders, right? So you could almost just have it as a way of、uh, gathering inputs from the users and then figuring out, like, hey, you know, I think we're really just going to get a lot of sales in like the purple one and then the blue one, right? And then probably just a、uh, size small, right? Because these are for maybe say single households, right? And so pot that's good enough for like one to two people or whatever it is, and the large or the extra large that we thought we wanted to make, maybe we can skip that. And so it is able to also give you an insight into how broader industry trends are developing. Whereas if you are young D two C brand, often you're operating solo. Right, you just know really well what your particular product may be doing, but you still have to spend a lot of time and energy to gather intel about your、uh, competitors, right? About the broader industry trend, especially if it's product that you're not making right now. So that still puts them more in the traditional realm of what we were talking about earlier, right? In terms of that product development process, and I think the concept of scale is really key here, right? Because For our manufacturers,、uh, they already have that long history, that deep manufacturing capability. It means that they can, from the get-go, offer things that are at a very compelling price to the user. Right versus say a new brand struggling to、uh, kind of get traction, right, and then it's only after a much longer period of time that they can then drive the prices down. So this concept of aggregation, I think people also ask us, oh, you know,、um, PDD describes itself as、uh, Costco plus Disney, right?、Uh, what where's the Costco angle, or what's the similarity? So the the common point there is really how we use aggregation of volume, aggregation of demand, to translate to better lower prices. 
prices. Uh, I think the difference is that because Costco started in the offline realm. So imagine, you know, back in like the 80s, the 90s, you're, 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 the only way that you buy things is, you know, driving to that Costco store, right? And for Costco to ensure that they sell a given volume of products, which they can then use to negotiate upstream, with the manufacturer or the supplier and say like, hey, you know, I get through how many tons of ketchup each month, right? So give me a better price. Give me a better price. That means that each consumer leaving Costco is walking out with jumbo cartons, right? Of juice, of ketchup, etc. Now in the online world, I don't need to force a guy to buy like, you know, 10 pounds of mayonnaise or whatever it is, right? He um, can actually just team up with other people in the team purchase. And, you know, it may not even be a person that's in the same uh, geographical area, right? So that's the beauty of e-commerce in that it broadens the entire marketplace so much more. It gives you so much more flexibility when it comes to aggregating that demand. I can pull it across space. I can pull it across time because now, right, for instance, Todd, you want to buy some mayonnaise and you know that, you know, I'm also a big cook. I, I, I make a lot of meals. So maybe I would be interested in getting some as well. And so you pull me in and I trust your taste and I feel like, okay, you know, this is uh, a good price and you know Todd says he's used this before and I guess it should be pretty good so I make that purchase right in the same time as Todd and to the same manufacturer so suddenly you're able to get the aggregation but without you know at the individual consumer level having to force them to take uh, large quantities which does have an impact actually on the frequency right with which they can come back and, and buy more things from you so this concept of I think scale is something that is important but I think for online we have more creative ways of helping our merchants get those benefits why is it that when we describe buying jumbo jugs of anything from Costco, it's always mayonnaise? For some reason, <laughs> always the poor product of choice. But you're right. I do go through a lot of mayonnaise because my wife is Russian and they use mayonnaise in everything. Okay. It I goes back to my student days when I, I bought jumbo quads of mayonnaise. Yeah. I know. I just turned my daughter onto mayonnaise and cucumber sandwiches. Okay. Thank you very much for that. This has been awesome. I've got one more question for you. You know, the, the, the topic du jour that we kind of have to talk about, we're now six months out after, you know, the the worst of really China's COVID-19 outbreak one. Is PDD changing or uh, adapting any of its strategies from that experience? For instance, as a company, I believe your stronghold is in the lower tiered cities in China. Again, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Do you plan on investing in customer acquisition in tier one cities uh, to try to tap into more wealthier areas or demographics? Yeah, I think it's a misconception that we only service users in the lower tier cities, right? So we've always said that actually in terms of our user distribution, it mirrors the population distribution of China. So in the month of November 2019, we actually had 45% of our GMV come from the first and second tier cities. Right. And I think it, it really goes to the point that value for money is a universal need, right? Whether right. you're living in Shanghai or you're living in a rural area or tier four city, everybody wants to save. Everybody wants to feel like they're getting um, something, right? For more than uh, what they actually pay for. Like, uh, are they getting more than what they actually paid for? So the different users between different tiers of uh, cities, they may actually be less different than what people typically think. 
right? So um, if I look at, for instance, fresh produce, that is something that people in the first and second tier cities do actually appreciate the opportunity to buy online, right? Because uh, it comes straight from the farmer and it's at a better price than anything that they can get from many of the offline uh, retail options, right? Because those offline options also have to pay Shanghai or Beijing rent, right? So that also bakes into the price that they get. So, you know, that's not to say that we only focus on like fresh produce, but I think it's just an example to show that for different groups of people, certain things, you know, it could be a high uh, ticket price item, right? But as long as you feel that you're getting greater value out of it, like, oh, you know, this robot vacuum cleaner, it's only 300 it's 300 RMB, so it costs more than the fruit for sure, but it's giving me the functionality of a 1,000 RMB robot vacuum cleaner. And that's great, right? So I think that's something that we'll continue to focus upon in terms of delivering that value for money proposition. Mm -hmm. And I think COVID, what it has done is that it's accelerated the adoption of e-commerce, especially for users who I think hitherto they would have been maybe more infrequent or even non-users, right? Maybe people who just thought, yeah, I don't really have that many things I want to buy or like, you know, I kind of enjoy going to the supermarket anyway, I'll just go. And so categories like fresh produce, right, grocery, where a lot of the, the typical consumer behavior is that they go every day or every other day to the local store to pick it up. Because of COVID, they were forced to adapt, right? And then they realized that, hey, actually, it is pretty convenient. I get access to different uh, variety of things uh, at a wider array of price points and it gets delivered to my doorstep. So what's not to like, right? So we, we are seeing people kind of like, you know, stick to it, maybe explore a little bit more and so I think longer term, the momentum behind, I think, e-commerce penetration is still very strong, right? And I think for PDD in terms of our strategy, it's always just been squarely focused on what do our users need and how can we surface the right products that they need for each category, right? How can we bring uh, value as well as an interactive shopping experience to our 600 million plus users? Xin Yi Lim, this has been brilliant. I can't thank you enough, especially for the second time. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks for having me, Todd. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.